You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Seven months we've been praying for the Skiles family, and they are one of several families here at Bethel that are facing great challenges. And for the Skiles, the challenge was their two-year-old daughter, Sophie, was battling cancer. I'm sad to report that her struggle ended on Thursday, but rejoice, as her mom Shelby wrote, that as she closed her eyes on her cancer-riddled body, she opened them in the presence of Jesus. I know the Skiles are grateful for the outpouring of support for their family that Bethel has exhibited, but I can assure you that we are even more grateful for their testimony of the gift of faith on full display as they walk down this incredibly difficult road. There'll be a family graveside service later today, and plans for a memorial service, a public memorial, uh, will be announced sometime in the coming weeks. Uh, But before we begin the sermon today, I'd like to lead us in prayer for the Skiles, as well as for others in our church family who are hurting today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the God of all comfort. So who else can we come to with these heavy burdens? You know us and you love us more than we can understand. Father, we come to you today full of grief, especially for the Skiles family over the painful battle Sophie bravely fought these last seven months. Father, even though we don't have the answers to all our questions, we still trust in and proclaim your goodness and love towards us, towards the Skiles and especially to Sophie. Father, we believe in the hope of the resurrection the hope that a day is coming when there is no more pain or cancer or death and that we are whole and with you in glory, reunited with those who know you that we have lost for but a brief time. Father, please make that hope seem even more real to us today. And for the Skiles family and for all those that have lost loved ones or who are struggling, I pray that your spirit would bring them peace. And Father, that you would raise up fellow saints, brothers and sisters, who in love will provide tangible comfort, encouragement, and support to them in this time of great need. Father, most importantly, that because of your limitless grace and the great power of your Spirit at work in those who are suffering and those that serve them, Father, that you would be glorified and that your Son, Jesus, would be made known. Finally, as we prepare to open your word, I pray that my words would be true to your words and that you would open our minds and hearts to the truth you want us to hear. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and in the power of your Spirit. Amen. 
Psychology Today reports that 60 to 75% of adults have recurring dreams. Common themes are reported to include being attacked or chased, falling, being stuck, being late, missing or failing an exam, or losing control of a car. They further state that theoretically recurrent dreams are assumed to reveal the presence of unresolved conflicts or stressors in an individual's life. This is corroborated by findings that recurrent dreams are usually accompanied by negative dream content. So that's great. The dreams that we repeatedly have over and over and over again are also most likely to be the very dreams that we don't want to have. So do you have recurring dreams? I do. My recurring dream is that I'm back at West Point, that place of great nightmare. And I'm getting ready for formation and I'm missing pieces of my uniform. And as I struggle to find my hat or my name tag or my black socks, the stress is building and the plebes who are the freshman cadets, they're counting down the minutes to formation. Sir, there are five minutes until lunch formation. The uniform is. Sir, there are four minutes. Sir, there are three minutes. Sir, there are two minutes. And I still can't find whatever it is I'm missing. And I lived on the fifth floor of the barracks, and I knew at that point in time that I had a decision to make. I could decide to either be out of uniform at formation, or I could decide to be late. And both of those are awful choices at a military academy. It's because they violate the secret rule of success at a military academy, which is to don't stick out. Don't be unusual. Don't be noticed. Be just like everybody else. Because when you don't do that, bad things happen. In fact, as I finished this sermon last night, you know what I dreamed about? You guessed it. It wasn't at West Point this time. I'm making progress with whatever unresolved issues I have. But it was with the state guard, and I could not find my uniform top to save my life, I'm running around in a t-shirt and very embarrassed. So even last night, I struggle with this. So if you've been in the military, you probably know what it feels like to be out of uniform, but it really applies to all of us. Other than kids in schools, and as I look out here, judges and maybe some doctors, most of us don't have uniforms that we wear to go to work or wear every day. But we do have generally assumed levels of dress that are appropriate for a certain occasion or environment. Now, Tyler, fortunately, is much more laid back than Dallas, where I used to live. But there are some places or events where shorts and sandals aren't appropriate, unless you're Jason Chandler or Brian Fiden, who can always seem to pull off shorts and sandals wherever they go. They're just so big that you're afraid to ever say anything to them. And I've heard, although I've not witnessed this, that there are actually a couple of places in Tyler where you can't wear jeans and boots. But you show up at the wrong party, underdressed, 
Or maybe it's Halloween and you're the only person at the office who wears a costume to work that day. And I assure you, you will feel uncomfortable. Or maybe it's just me. And I've got some sort of weird PTSD from my military days. Or you guys are all just much more self-confident than I am. And it doesn't bother you. But why is that? Why does it seem to bother us when we stick out, when we're different? We have this desire to fit in, to be a part of a group, to not stick out to, or be different because it's awkward, uncomfortable. Which can be good if you're in a group that promotes or encourages or leads you to beneficial things like hopefully a good church. But how do you respond when the world around you seems to head in a completely different direction? What do you do when the stakes are higher than should I wear a tie or a skirt? Will you have the courage or the strength to be different? Our passage today covers Moses' final instructions to the nation of Israel about his future king. And the message to them is, you need a different kind of king than all the other nations around you. And it's just as true for the nation of Israel, nation of Israel 2,400 years ago as it is for us today. In fact, today's passage will show us that we just don't need a different, a better king. What we actually need is a savior. Our text today is Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. That's Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. And while you're turning or clicking to Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Bible, let me give you a broad outline about how we'll spend our time together this morning. We're going to start with contrasting three kings. It'll be the ideal king mentioned here in Deuteronomy, it will be Solomon, the last king of the undivided kingdom. And it will be our king, Jesus. And then we'll wrestle briefly with what the implications for that are for us today. But before I read the text, let me set some context. I've mentioned Deuteronomy is the, the fifth book of the Bible. That is the last book of what we call the Pentateuch. All five books written by Moses and delivered to the nation of Israel while they wandered around in the desert. And this, Deuteronomy, was delivered in an address just before they entered the Promised Land, just before Moses dies, and they go on without him. And it does a couple of things. The book uh, recounts all the events of the Exodus and their time in the desert, and it summarizes the law, the Mosaic law that had been given. And then... It inserts a couple of things that are unique to Deuteronomy. And one of those is the instructions for choosing a new king and how that king should act. 400 years before Israel had a king. So let's read Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say... I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. 
You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So as we look at what this passage has to say about this ideal king, let's divide it into three sections. Verses 14 to 16 address the qualifications of the king. 16 and 17 are the prohibitions to the king. And 18 through 20 are the prescriptions for the king. So, qualifications. Starting in verse 14, we see that Moses is looking to the future with the basic conditions that need to be met before Israel can have a king. They must be in the land that is promised to them through the Abrahamic covenant and reaffirmed by the Mosaic covenant, which means they'll have to expel all the Canaanite nations that are in the land. And then, when they are a people with both a land and a nation, then the key here is why they would want a human king. The text says it's because, like all the nations that are around me. Moses is predicting that the motive for desiring a king will come from looking around at their neighbors, all who have human kings, the desire to be like those around you, to fit in. You know, the great irony here is that with the people of Israel, you have people visibly and tangibly led by a real God who is their king. And those folks will later look around them at human kings who claim to be gods and are not and say, yes, that's what we want. So God, speaking through Moses, says, yes, Israel, you can set a human king over you to represent me. But here are the two conditions. One, I get to choose him. And two, he must be an Israelite. Must be a Jew. An Israelite chosen by God. And we see this fulfilled with both Saul and David. Both Israelites, both chosen by God, the first two kings of Israel. So once Israel has a qualified king... What is this king prohibited from doing? There are three things. The first is in verse 16. It says, Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, 
or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. So what does this mean? God doesn't like horses. No, this refers to amassing military power since the principal use for horses at that time was to pull chariots or for mounted cavalry. So the ideal king was to have a weak military. So why did I equate not having horses with having a weak military? It's because cavalry in war is the difference maker. When I was in the army, I was an armor officer, which is the modern-day version of the cavalry. We called armor the combat arm of decision because it has a tremendous advantage over the infantry or the, the foot soldier. Advantages in size and speed and range that you can use decisively in battle. Our tanks weighed 63 tons. They went 45 miles per hour and could shoot for two miles. But before there were tanks and before there were planes and bombs that became shock and awe, horse-mounted cavalry was the original shock and awe. If you've seen the movie Braveheart, there's a scene from the Battle of Stirling Bridge in 1297 where the Scots cavalry is greatly outnumbered and the 5,000 Scottish infantry have to withstand the mounted charge of 2,000 English cavalry. Thousands of galloping horses with pounding hooves down on the infantry. You see in the camera the ground begins to shake and the movie paints a vivid picture of how hard it would be to withstand the force, the mass of a mounted cavalry charge. Which is true even though that's not how that battle really unfolded. Horses were then, and, and particularly in biblical times, were the key to military power. And it was either great foolishness or great courage that would allow you to be different enough to stand when everyone else wanted to run. But if the king has a weak military, maybe he has a great political or diplomatic power. Look at verse 17. You'll see that that's not an option for this king either. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. So a common way for kingdoms to establish and cement an alliance was through intermarriage. Kings would take a wife from another country's royal family, and that would give them additional motivation to fulfill the terms of the alliance. But verse 17 also points out one of the dangers of this common strategy where it says, lest his heart turn away. These wives from other countries all had different religions than Israel. So the many foreign wives would turn the heart of the king away from his God, the one true God. So the ideal king has a weak military. He's weak diplomatically or politically. Maybe they're an economic powerhouse. Maybe the king will use his great wealth to hire mercenaries to fight. Or maybe he was so entrenched with trading relationships that his country would be protected and safe. Sorry. 
Look how verse 17 ends. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. It's not a prohibition against any gold, but excessive gold here in the ESV. Which is one place where I don't think the ESV does a great job with the word excessive. It seems to read like you can have a whole bunch of silver and gold just as long as it's not excessive. Which I think lets the modern Western reader off the hook a little bit. Like it's okay to have great wealth as long as it's not excessive, you know. Which is kind of like trying to figure out if the number of cats that you have is excessive. If you have a lot of cats, it's excessive. And before all you cat lovers send me hate email, I say this as a person who has an excessive number of cats at my house. But I digress. Back to the text. 254 times the Hebrew word meod is used in the Old Testament. And this is the only time it's translated as excessive. It's usually translated as very much or great or large quantity, which is a direction that most of the other translations available to us today follow. So, much or great wealth, which is really the translation I prefer. So the ideal king for Israel is prohibited from developing real military power cultivating alliances politically and diplomatically and amassing great economic power, which is what everybody around them will be doing. So what's left? What will keep this tiny nation from being overrun? And obviously we know it's through relying on the power of God and not these traditional forms of power. That's what the ideal king would do. We see how this works with the prescriptions that the passage lays out for the king. Look at verse 18. It outlines the beginning of the first of the two prescriptions that will not only keep the king safe, but give him a long reign. The text says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So the first thing the ideal king does when he sits down on his new throne, is he will take out a book and write a copy of the law. Likely just the book of Deuteronomy. And this has two effects. One, the king now has his own copy, which doesn't seem like a big deal to us today, but back in biblical times, they didn't have the same access to the internet and to smartphones that we have. And the second, and the teachers in the room will understand this, is the deeper learning that comes from both hearing, reading, and then writing a text down. We see the evidence of this benefit in verse 19 with the second prescription. And it, which is his handwritten copy of the law, shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. So write it out, keep it with you, and read it every day. Which was good for the king then, and it's good for us still today. 
And then we see in the text the purposes or benefits of doing this in the rest of that verse. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Not to be afraid of the Lord, but to revere Him, to respect Him, to look on Him with wonder and awe, that He would keep the law and do it. What's the difference between keeping the law and doing the law? Are these synonyms? So the word keeping, shamar in Hebrew, often translates as guard or defend. But when it's paired with another verb, as it is here with the verb do, then it means to do something very carefully with great attention and intentionality. Which is why some of your translations have shortened this sentence to just have one verb and to say something like to carefully follow or carefully observe the law. It's the picture of an active faith that is working and alive. So the first purpose of this daily study of the law is to learn, to grow in the fear or awe of the Lord that leads to obedience. We can look at this as kind of the vertical effect. The second effect that flows out of daily study is outlined with beginning of verse 20. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. Daily study of God's Word leads to humility, which is true for a king and true for us. But this paints a picture of a very different king, certainly not like any of the neighboring kings for the Israelites. Humility and equality with the subjects wasn't then and likely has never been a royal virtue. But this ideal king is also to be the model Israelite, united with his brothers and sisters. And despite his military strength or wealth or political power that might separate him from his brothers and sisters, he does not consider himself above them. And if he does this, if he stays humble and if he stays obedient, doesn't turn aside, he will continue long in his reign as will his descendants. Not because of his, of his own military, political, or economic power, but because of his reliance on God to protect them. That is the source of their power. It's the same God who defeated the mighty Egyptian cavalry, cavalry during the crossing of the Red Sea. The same God who gave them the wealth of the Egyptians. The same God who was sovereign over the nations around them and instructed them not to make alliances with the Canaanites, but to drive them out from the land that God had promised them. That God is the source of their power. So that's the ideal king, an Israelite chosen by God, who knows and reveres God, who obeys him and is united with his people, who trusts not in his own strength, but in the strength of the promises of God. So let's roll the clock forward 400 years. God chooses Saul to become king, and then he fails. And God chooses David to be king, 
Although he comes closer than any other king, he also fails. On a side note, we're starting a new series this next semester on the life of David. So we're going to study those successes and failures in much greater detail this year. So after King David, God chooses Solomon, who by earthly standards was the most successful king that Israel had ever seen. He was the wisest. He built the great temple for God. He enjoyed a long reign marked by peace and the accumulation of great wealth. And he's the second king that we'll look at today. You know, he started fairly strong. Not perfectly, but fairly strong. 1 Kings 3.3 3 describes Solomon as one who loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So not a perfect start, but a good start. And then in verse 5, he has a dream where he asks the Lord for wisdom. And the Lord grants him wisdom. But also in verse 13, says, I give you also what you've not asked for, both riches and honor, so that now the king shall compare with you all of your days. Notice he doesn't say anything about the wives or the horses. In fact, verse 1 of this chapter starts with, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, which is the first wife mentioned in Scripture for him, but it certainly is not his last. But here's how Solomon finished how he is described in 1 Kings 10, beginning in verse 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew. Then later, at the beginning of chapter 11, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will run away, turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to those in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And just as God promised, Solomon was the last descendant of David to reign over a unified kingdom. It split north and south, and this started a pattern of downward decay in all aspects, spiritually, morally, economically, militarily, that ultimately ends 500 years later with Israel defeated, destroyed, enslaved, and exiled away from the promised land. So we started today with Moses' ideal king, then the most 
successful king, Solomon, which led to the complete failure of Israel. And now we roll the clock forward another 500 years and the birth of Jesus, the advent, the eternal Son of God stepping out of heaven and becoming man. Jesus, fully man, and yet somehow still fully God. And he's a very different king. A king like no other, the ideal king. The Bible tells us he was qualified. He was an Israelite, a Jew, as his genealogies prove. Scripture declares him God's son, his chosen. And yet through most of his life, he's not recognized as king. The angel Gabriel declares he will be king of the Jews before he's even born. The wise men come seeking the king of the Jews. But the first time Scripture records that he's addressed specifically as king is some 30 years after his birth when Nathaniel, one of his disciples, says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And then later, more widely, on what we would call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, when the crowd chants, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. A king with no horses, riding on a bog colt, with no military power. A king with no political power, who's persecuted by the elites. A man with no wives, no divided affections, totally devoted to his father. A man with no silver or gold, no place to even lay his head. Not only did he obey God's written law, fulfilling all its requirements, he was the Logos, the very Word of God incarnate. He wasn't a physically impressive figure, yet John describes him this way. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He was a very different king, glorious and yet humble. Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, which we read during worship, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ideal king was humble. He was united and identified with his brothers. And finally, sarcastically, at the end of his life, he was recognized as king with a sign hanging over him on the cross that sneered, King of the Jews. And they gave this king a crown of thorns. And he died, the ideal king. So he was the ideal king, and yet did all of Israel's problems 
go away? Of course not. Because the world needed much more than a model king, an ideal king. We need more than just the perfect example of humility, grace, and truth, and love to inspire us to do better, to try harder, although we should. The problem isn't with horses or wives or money or military might or political power or economic strength. They are not intrinsically evil. It's not what these, those things do. It's what they do to you. King or not, it's what they do to our hearts. Remember, God gave Solomon a discerning mind. And yet these very things turned his heart away from God. Because we just don't need a king. We need a savior. We need more than a discerning mind. We need a new heart. A new heart to replace our wicked hearts of stone with a living heart that's capable of loving the Lord. And it's through faith in Jesus, the Messiah King, the Savior, that we get this new heart and are welcomed into the family of God as brothers and sisters. But since we do have Jesus as both King and Savior, what does that mean for us today from this passage? Or does this passage even really apply to us? For starters, this isn't a blueprint for a successful presidency here in the United States. Not that we wouldn't be well served by a humble, godly man pursuing God's will for our country, but there's only been one nation in national covenant with God, and that's the nation of Israel. Only Israel's king can prosper without military, political, and economic power. But I do think there's an application of the principle that relying on our strength, worldly strength, even the powers listed in this passage, specifically our influence, our family, and maybe not our horses, but maybe our guns, tends to lead us away from God and relying on Him for our strength and power. You know, I'll confess that this is a challenging passage for me because I struggle with the sin of self-reliance, really rooted in pride. On more days than I care to admit, my default, my flesh, leads me to rely on my strength and abilities, my influence, and even my wealth such that it is. Use this power to solve all of my problems, just like the other kings in this world around me. And if I'm not careful, I slide into a relationship with God that is more of a relay race. I run as hard and as fast as I can until I can't go anymore, and then I hand the baton off to God to finish the race for me. Maybe that's you too. Which, just like the other earthly kings around us, appears to work for a little while. Until we run into a challenge that our power is not sufficient for. A challenge that's beyond us. A health challenge. 
the loss of a job, the loss of an election, the loss of a loved one. And suddenly we realize that we are powerless to solve our most important problems, our biggest challenges. Yet we have a different kind of king. He's a savior king who loves us and who is more powerful than any of these foes. And here's how the Apostle Paul describes the, the life, the different life that is possible through faith in this very different king who is both king and savior. Beginning in Ephesians 1 verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's my prayer, my hope for me, for my family, for us, for Bethel, that we would live this with this hope before us every day. Expecting God's great power the same power that brings dead things to life to be at work and active and evident in our life. And that not our might, but the very power of God at work in us would draw others, not to us, but to know Him and love Him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and, and ask for the courage to be different. Different in pursuing you and not earthly power. Father, I pray for the courage and the strength and the endurance to suffer well, to not be self-reliant, to not to wait to reach out to you for help, but to walk with you, to walk in the power of your Spirit every day. And Father, for my friends who are tired of struggling, tired of being afraid, Father, I pray that they would know you. They would believe in the reality of your power and your great love for us. And Father, not just that they would know it, but they would feel it, they would experience it, and that others would notice the difference and be attracted to you. Father, I pray this in the only name possible, and that is the name of my King, our King, 
your son Jesus the ideal king and I can only confess that because of your grace of your power of your spirit amen you know one of the ways the church has done through history is to celebrate communion as Jesus commanded as a way to remember him but in light of this passage today, I'd like us to think of this as kind of a victory dinner for our Savior King. Remembering His great love for us, but also His humility and obedience. And through His death, His reconciliation of us to God, making us His brother, but also reconciling us one to another. So as the men who are serving communion today come forward, I'd like to give us some instructions. The first is that this table, this supper, is open only to those who've placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Regardless of whether Bethel is your regular church home, you are welcome at this table if you are a follower of Jesus. But if that's not you, or if you're not sure if Jesus is your Savior King, then please watch us as we worship, and then after the service... Ask the person next to you or one of these men or one of the pastors to tell you about who this Jesus, this Savior King is and how it's possible to experience the joy and forgiveness and love and acceptance that comes through being part of his family. And then after our prayer, the men will distribute both the bread and the juice and there's a gluten-free option that will be available at the back of the room, and ask that you hold those elements while we all prepare our hearts through confession, particularly focusing on where we need to be reconciled, but also where in our life we need to be different. And then once everyone has been served and the men have returned, then we'll take the elements together. Let's pray. Father, you have been gracious towards us in that you loved us before we loved you. You loved us so much that you sent your Son, who is God, who also became a man, and that he was humble and obedient. He loved you and he loved us so much that he went to a cross where he was killed in payment for our sins. So, Father, it's him who we remember in this celebration of communion today. Remember his obedience. We remember his humility. Remember his great love. Father, so we celebrate his victory over death, over all of the foes that still plague us. And we're thankful for the day that we truly can have that victory supper with him. It's his name that I pray, the power of your spirit.